The African continent has produced many remarkable royal families. Being born into one may make you a royal, but what do you have to do to become a legend? And one not to be crossed as well. Strap into your seat or your throne. This is African Roots, brought to you by DW. Here we discover how individuals from across Africa have shaped the continent. I'm Leila Johnson-Salami. And I'm Kai Nebe. Hi, what's up? Hi, Leila. Have you ever um, been hit with an epiphany, like a strong moment of realization? Um, well, I mean, I'm pretty sure, uh, but I don't know, n- probably nothing life-changing. Although, does it count if I say asking you to be on the African Roots show? Does, does that count? <laughs> Good one, good one. But, you know, I mean, come on, there has to be, you know, that moment that you just kind of saw the light. Um, I, I've got to say, um, that's not ringing any bells at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. Um, I mean, if you're not going to be a visionary, I've got a story for you about someone who was. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, hit me. Yeah. And guess what, Kai? She was an empress. Well, I'm certainly not an empress. So... Like, do I even look like any kind of royalty to you? Mm, well, your attitude today kind of smells like it. <laughs> okay, so who we're talking about? Obviously, it's a royal person. All right, all right. Let me play you some clips. For me, she was the apex of feminine power in, in Ethiopia. Taitu is not someone to be trifled with. She has a temper. She has rather clear trenchant views about other people. We have had our fair share of uh, women rulers, even though they would not be as powerful as the empress. Okay, well, for starters, I don't know who exactly they're referring to, but whoever it is, she sure sounds powerful. Yep, she was. She was very powerful. And um, those are historians describing Ethiopian empress Taitu Batul. And what does this have to do with me having, like, a vision or something like that? Well, not you per se, but Taitu Batul. You know, (laughs) some background first. Um, She was born in the mid-1800s into a powerful aristocratic Ethiopian family. Um, This was near Lake Tana in the northeastern region of Ethiopia. Um, She was married off at the tender age of 10. Unfortunately, that wasn't unusual for a noble girl at the time. But what was unusual about Taitu was that there was a special story about the young aristocrat. Historian Huyen Simon explains. There was a prophecy that she heard as a young uh, daughter that said that she would be the next empress of Ethiopia. And so that guided her uh, throughout her life until she met Menelik. Now, imagine a young girl that's busy studying and there's this crown that appears in her vision just out of reach, right? Teasing her. Something of the sort is said to have happened. Wow. Yeah, I can't say any of that happened to me. Well, Ethiopia at the time was controlled by a Solomonic dynasty. And those people believed that, you know, they had a divine right to rule the people of Ethiopia. At the top of the tree was the king of Shewa, known as Saleh Mariam, or better still as Menelik. 
Okay, so it was he who married the 10-year-old Taitu. No, actually, by the time they got married, um, this may shock you, but Taitu had been divorced four times, which apparently was also quite common. Wow. Um, but after a string of failed marriages, Taitu had amassed a lot of wealth and had a high standing in society. Wow, four marriages, that's like, that sounds kind of social socialite-like. Yep, minus the tabloids and the scandals, you know, probably. Um, what we do know is that there was speculation that these very traits are the traits that made her attractive to Menelik. Well, at least according to Hewan Simon. Some historians argue that um, Emperor Menelik was attracted to powerful women because he was raised by his mother and grandmother and also his previous wife was not unlike Aitu. Uh, some argue that he was just completely in love when he saw her. And so to secure the power, to secure uh, being the king of kings over the other kings, he needed the support of um, her family members who were rulers of Semein and, and Wallo. And through intermarriage, of course, uh, would also help secure Tigray for him. Right. So Taitu and Menelik marry in 1883. By the way, Menelik as well um, had been married twice before. There were really a lot of marriages and divorces happening at this point. <laughs> yeah, like I said, it was quite common. Um, of course, marriage among, you know, the Ethiopian nobles also, you know, it served the purpose of establishing political connections and alliances. But the marriage between Taitu Batul and Menelik would last till his death. Okay. So he finally found the one. He found the one. <laughs> Menelik was crowned Emperor Menelik II, uh, Emperor of Ethiopia in 1889. But Taitu's role in shaping modern-day Ethiopia became very prominent, Kai. Um, she was much more than a partner. She was also a military strategist, and she was involved in most of his political decisions. She even rode with him to the battlefront. Wow. So that's like a superpower couple. Yep. According to historian Raymond Jonas, the empress was often described as the tough woman at Menelik's side. Taitu tends to be the person who is feared, and Menelik is someone who uh, is more approachable. But it's quite clear that any kind of solution that's going to come out of court really requires the assent of both parties. But of course, the late 1800s were trying times for African people, obviously in the face of European colonial ambition, and um, for Ethiopia, that meant Italy. While treaties with Italian imperialists had actually helped Taitu and Menelik consolidate their power on the throne, Jonas says Taitu in particular was very skeptical of the European allies. Um, she made it clear that she didn't trust Europeans. It was said that she thought that they smelled uh, that they gave off a bad odor. Um, and that may just be another way of saying the same thing, that she didn't like them, that she mistrusted them. And just months into the new couple's reign, um, the Italians drew up a treaty that effectively made Ethiopia a protectorate of Italy. Actually, there were two versions, by the way, of the Wachale Treaty, one in Italian and one in Amharic. Um, the Italian one more or less said that Ethiopia was subject to Italy. But the Amharic one said Ethiopia maintained independence. My goodness. So they there were two versions of this. It sounds like a it sounds like a joke almost. Mm, you'd think so, but no. Um, apparently, the Italians thought that they could trick Menelik, um, who annulled the treaty, by the way, as soon as he found out. And many believe that Taitu was the driving force behind this. 
Okay, so I'm guessing this meant war. Yeah. Taitu and Menelik rode into battle against the Italians, culminating in the Battle of Adwa in the First Italo-Ethiopian War. Taitu alone, Kai, is said to have commanded 5,000 infantry and 600 cavalries. Hewan Simone narrates Taitu's war strategy, which eventually led to the defeat of the Italians in 1896. It was three battles uh, that culminated in the victory of Adwa, and uh, Taitu uh, was important in winning the second battle of this, where she asked that the fort that the Italians had built in Mekali, because they were not able to defeat them in it, uh, she decided that we should cut out their water supply. So Taitu and Menelik defeated, like, an imperial power then? Yeah. It's hard to exaggerate the importance of the victory at the Battle of Adwa. Um, it was humiliating defeat for Italy, as you can imagine, one of the few occasions where a European power surrendered to an African army. It also helped to ensure that Ethiopia remained uncolonized. Wow. Menelik and Taitu ruled Ethiopia for 24 years, from 1889 to 1913. But in 1906, Menelik suffered a stroke, and Empress Taitu became Ethiopia's de facto ruler. But this is where things kind of started to go downhill. After Menelik's death in 1913, Taitu's political power waned, and she was eventually ousted from the palace before she died in 1917. She left a remarkable legacy, you know, not just in shaping modern Ethiopia, but also founding Addis Ababa, Ethiopia's capital, um, which, by the way, means new flower for anyone who didn't know. <laughs> so, Leila, I'm getting the impression that Taitu was, you know, as you mentioned, quite a strong, a strong woman, like a sort of a person who was suspicious. But was she also kind of completely anti-foreigners? Was she uh, skeptical of anyone who came into Ethiopia? You know, good question, Kai. Um, some quarters did accuse her of xenophobia and distrust of other Ethiopians, as well as favoring her allies for important positions in the royal court. Um, despite her mistrust of Europeans, she took an interest in foreign modernities such as European clothing, a modern plow, and the printing press, which she imported to Ethiopia. I think, though, decisiveness made her a great foil to Menelik and really helped her reputation as a strong leader. Do you think that this was kind of a defining, you know, power couple? Absolutely. I, I don't even think that's arguable. Um, from the stories and the history that we know anyway... Um, she was young, but clearly very powerful. When we come back, we're in Southern Africa and meet a queen who refused to kneel down. DW, African Roots. Find new African Roots episodes on dw.com slash African Roots, Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. So Leila, I have to say, I really do like that story of Taitu Betul. Like, seriously. Charmed, Kai. <laughs> Charmed. <laughs> 
Well, I, I also, I mean, you told it very well, but you know, there is, it, I also like it because it sort of reminded me of one of the first stories I remember from primary school history class. And I think it is a story worth revisiting. For some reason, it just really stuck in my mind. Huh. I'm trying to picture, you know, little Kai in history class somewhere in Namibia. <laughs> For sure, I wasn't the one conjuring up visions or royal insignia, Leila. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but that is not the point. Okay, so anyway, the crux of the story that I want to talk about is uh, about a noblewoman refusing to bow, like literally. And in revisiting the story... This story, it's about Queen Nzinga, or as some people refer to her as Queen Nzinga. Queen Nzinga, Queen Nzinga. Okay, so what did she do? Well, we have to go back to 1622 when we're in Luanda, the present-day capital of Angola. But then Luanda was a very different place. It was an important port town in Portugal's fledgling colonial empire. And also, it was unfortunately a major slave trading hub. And the part I remember, like looking back on that history class when I was a youngster, is that the Portuguese governor had received an emissary of the local kingdom. And the person in question was Njinga Mbande. Okay. So the emissary, uh, Queen Njinga, is shown into the room. But it turns out the Portuguese have not provided her a chair. Instead, she is given a rug to sit on, and the implication is that she's literally being looked down on by the Portuguese officials. But Njinga instead orders one of her servants to crouch down and serve as a seat for her. Okay, the point being? Njinga Mbanda refused to be humiliated and instead insisted on an eye-level negotiation. This is how Luzia Muniz, an Angolan sociologist, journalist and activist for women's rights, describes Queen Njinga Mbanda. We need to think that we are in the 17th century in what is today Angolan territory and an African woman deals with the Portuguese, a European power, as an equal, using her intelligence and especially her diplomatic acumen. Interesting. So, you know, that's what you remember from school. But how many years have passed? What have you learned since? You know, sometimes I wonder why I even bother. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, what is Queen and Jinga's backstory? Yeah, I mean, like I said, that this, this, this story really did uh, stick to me. And to be honest, Leila, what I do remember was that episode that I told you about this woman refusing to be belittled by another power and, you know, the fact of just basically looking at Isla. I don't know, the story kind of stuck with me. But of course, now that I'm a bit older and a bit wiser, I'd have to go and look back at the history. And let's take a step back. So Njinga was born in 1583 and lived at a time when the Portuguese colonial power in southwestern Africa was growing. But also it was the time of the transatlantic slave trade. And that too was growing. Uh, she was brought up in the ruling Dongo family and received military and political education as a youngster, which paved a way for her to become uh, a diplomat, sort of a diplomat of the time, I guess. It, it, and it was her brother, the king of Ndongo, who actually sent her to negotiate the region's independence from Portuguese rule. She first met Portuguese governor João Carreira de Souza in 1622, 
And it was at that time that Njinga made one of her more memorable strategic decisions, according to Luzia Moniz. Njinga simula uma conversão que de facto não é efetiva. Njinga simulates a conversion, which is not real, to make negotiations with the Portuguese, the invaders, easier. She convinces the Portuguese that she had become a Christian. From then on, negotiations were easier. E a partir daí, a negociação seria mais fácil. So, some concessions from both sides then? Yeah, kind of. I mean, although Njingambande came out of that meeting with a peace treaty, I mean, she also took on Christianity and a Christian name, which was Ana Souza. She couldn't really stop Portuguese incursions or their insatiable appetite for slaves. Wow. Um, did the Portuguese keep breaking the peace? Well, they did launch attacks on Njinga's Ndongo kingdom and did take a number of uh, people as slaves. And in the late 1620s, the Portuguese joined forces with Njinga's opponents and rivals. And the Ndongo kingdom was essentially lost. But that did not mark the end of Njinga, not by a long stretch. Using her diplomatic skills, she established alliances with the, the local powers, one of whom being the Matamba, and she became their queen. And she also made an important alliance with the Dutch against the Portuguese. And she continued battling and negotiating with the Portuguese, according to Angolan historian Manuel dos Santos. She wasn't only a queen that sat on her throne waiting for solutions or sending her subjects to solve her problems. She was also the military chief. And for as long as she kept her physical vigor, she participated in military actions. But it would be wrong to imagine Njinga as a straightforward, altruistic leader. From early on, there was a rivalry between her and her brother, Ngolo Mbanda, who actually inherited the throne in 1617. He set about eliminating rivals, but did spare Njinga. Instead, though, he murdered her son, and according to the story, had her, as well as her sisters, forcibly sterilized. That's, that's just horrible. Yikes. Yeah, very yikes. And unlike Nzinga, who apparently had no fear of the Europeans, despite the havoc they were wreaking in the, in the Ndongo kingdom, Angolo Mbande did not have a stomach for dealing with the pressure of Portuguese conquest. By 1624, he had fallen out of favor in the royal court, and he was dead. Some say suicide, others blame Zinga herself for killing him, whether it was through poisoning or something like that. We don't actually know conclusively. And, and she did also have a mean streak. This is another thing about Nzinga. She, she is said to have also personally killed her brother's only heir to the throne. Wow. I mean, thinking about it, let's be honest, she would have kind of had cause to. Um, I'm guessing they didn't teach you that in primary school. <laughs> yeah, they certainly didn't teach us this in primary school. And I'm just kind of wondering... this does take the concept of a sibling rivalry to the next level, you know? Honestly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so definitely we didn't hear about this in primary school, but we also didn't hear that much as young children about the rampant slave trade that most leaders at the time were in some way engaged in. Anyway, Njinga became more powerful in the Ndongan court, becoming queen of the Ambundu kingdoms, which included both Ndongo and the Matamba royal courts. So by now, she was actually in control of two royal courts. She was perhaps one of the most powerful women leaders in the history of the African continent. And Njinga backed this up with prowess on the battlefield, her multilingual abilities, 
Some say she spoke as many as five languages and the diplomatic skills, you know, to deal with the ever increasingly powerful Portuguese. And, you know, it just sounds like such a difficult climate to be a queen in. Certainly, and it required a truly remarkable character to be queen in. And Queen Njinga did pretty much anything to stay in power and fight off Portuguese invaders. She also built up a large business in trading slaves with her Dutch allies. I think she was a woman ahead of her time. She was a military chief that understood that being a woman was not an impediment to commanding armies and commanding them according to her objectives. Queen Njinga never submitted to Portuguese control before she died in 1663. We actually know quite a surprising amount about her because of her conversion to Christianity which meant that Portuguese and Capuchin monks were allowed to live at her court and write down their experiences of her. Of course, histories have always been told orally, but the difference of the Portuguese and Capuchin monks is that they actually wrote it down. Interesting, you know, because for someone who was such a thorn in the side of Portugal, I can't imagine those were flattering portrayals. Well, not always, but if they weren't flattering, they definitely gave off a sense of Fear. And it does seem that they all admired her political and diplomatic skills and her ability to form allegiances and remain in power for the time that she did. We have to remember she was ruthless and her involvement in the slave trade and looking at that from today's perspective does seem horrible. The thing is, though, Queen Njinga really broke the mold of how African rulers dealt with Europeans. She forced them to take her and African militias seriously on a diplomatic and military level. She even changed the way African leaders thought about women leaders. And today, Queen Njinga Mbande is recognized as a symbol of early African resistance to the colonial endeavor, especially in Angola. Okay, that's where we will have to leave things for today. African Roots is a cooperation between Deutsche Welle and the Gerda Henkel Foundation. Special thanks to our producer, Philip Zadner, and our voiceover artists. Special thanks to Comic Republic in Nigeria as well for the amazing artworks and contributions by Carla Fernandez and Stella Oneko. I'm Leila Johnson-Salami. And I'm Kai Nebe. (laughs) 